You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And just like that, we're back for another week. Josh Pate here, host of, among many things, Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. This, however, is not YouTube. This is Strictly Podcast. It is the Late Kick Extra Podcast. We do it once a week. It's a reservoir where we take every single question in mailbag format that we can't get to on the YouTube show, and we do it here. And as it turns out, a lot of you like this format even more than the YouTube show itself. I prefer both. I think there's room for both. So quickly, the way to get in touch with us every week, joshpate706 at gmail.com. That's the email option. You can hit me on Twitter at LateKickJosh. Really encourage you guys to follow me and always leave the DMs open for you. You can also get in touch with us in the YouTube comment section itself. And most notably, we really encourage you to give us a five-star review on the podcast you're listening to right now and give us a written review. And in that written review, if you'll put your question there, I can guarantee you it gets answered. Now, I try to get to every single one of them. And the ones I can't get to, I respond to you anyway. I see every one of them. I read every one of them. I try and make myself really available to you. But you give us those written podcast reviews and questions in those reviews, we really incentivize that for, I uh, would call them obvious reasons. So without further ado, let's get into the action this week. We start with couple of questions here. One football question, one non-football question. And this is from Sam in a podcast review. He starts with a football question. With the wide receiver hall Ohio State brought in last cycle with Fleming and Smith and Jigba, Scott Cooper, you guys remember, could this rival Alabama's 2017 class as the best ever? You remember that one had Jerry Judy, Devontae Smith, Henry Ruggs. Uh, Yeah, well, the answer is yes, it could. I mean, We were talking about that wide receiver hall for months and months and months leading up to signing day for the Buckeyes. And now what's so funny is they're in it for the number one receiver in America this year, Emeka Ibuka out of Washington State. And the only question about how much talent they'll get at wide receiver this year is how many guys are willing to come in and compete with that dearth of talent they brought in in last cycle. So yeah, absolutely, it could contend for that. Now, that's a very lofty status, and we have the benefit of knowing pretty much what that Alabama class did. By the way, you got some time on your hands after the podcast. Go look at Alabama's 2017 recruiting class. It was, it may have been number one in the country, if not number two. Look at how many guys in their top-rated commitments. There are no busts. There are no misses. That class was totally insane, and the wide receiving core was kind of the crown jewel. They had a quarterback in that class by the name of a Hawaiian kid, uh, left-handed. I don't know. I think he did a few things there. Tua. That was his name, Tua. They had him, Dylan Moses. It was loaded. All right, now here's the non-football question. This is, again, from Sam. You mentioned before you're a storm chaser. You live in the South. Do you remember what you did on April 27, 2011? Now, let me pause. You know how a lot of times people say, ooh, I just got chills, or ooh, get chills, and they'll like retweet something five times a week and say, chills, but they're not really getting chills. I don't get chills from many things, but anytime someone says April 27th, 2011, I'm looking at my arm right now. I see goosebumps on both arms and on the back of my neck. 
You can't say it. I can't say it or no one else around me can say it without getting that kind of physical reaction out of me. If you live in the South, you already know, 427, 2011. You know what happened that day. You know where you were. You inevitably know someone who was affected by it. So here's what the deal is. So the biggest tornado outbreak of our generation, of the last couple generations, it is right there with the super outbreak of 74. For those of you who are a little bit older and from the South or maybe portions of the Midwest, you guys remember that. I don't know that we have any people in the audience that would remember the outbreak of 25, tri-state outbreak, uh, maybe the 32 outbreak in the South. That was big too. If you are, God bless you. I'm happy to have you here and we're coming up on a hundred years for you. So let's get ready to celebrate in style. But April 27th, 2011. Yes, I vividly remember it. I vividly remember the days leading up to it. There are so many different parameters. Atmospherically, there are so many parameters that you look for in a tornado outbreak. And if you're checking off 20, 25, 30 of them, you know it's going to be a big time day. That outbreak, as I recall, we were checking off 60 plus out of, you know, like a list of 70. There's never a 100% certainty in that field, but that's as close as you'll ever get. So everyone knew it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when, it was a matter of where. There were 15 tornadoes that day rated EF4 or higher. Four of them were EF5. If you ever want to know what EF5 tornado damage looks like, pull up on YouTube sometime. Uh, Hackleburg, Alabama, Phil Campbell, Alabama. You want to see one? Check out Philadelphia, Mississippi. Moving about 70 miles an hour, by the way. Moving so fast, it's tilted. An incredible day. They were all screaming. Everything that formed took on a supercell. It was insane to watch. So here's where I was. I was in Columbus and I was in Columbus, Georgia. And so I had to work that day. I could not go chase that day until later. So I was watching from home as things were rapidly unfolding in Mississippi and Alabama. And um, man, oh man, what a day that was. That was the day the Tuscaloosa tornado happened. That one moved from Tuscaloosa to Birmingham. So surreal to watch that unfold. And because Tuscaloosa is a pretty major market there, everyone has tower cams. Uh, you can go back and watch right now. Multiple news stations tracked that tornado. That's an EF4 tornado moving through Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Dozens of fatalities. And they're able to track it on live TV. You know, James Spann's been in Birmingham forever. And he's on live TV. He's on air there in his suspenders. And they're just following an EF4 tornado moving through really close to the University of Alabama on live TV. Now, remember how surreal that was. And I also remember, you know, the way a big time supercell works, it's just like a vent. It's just, it's just pulling things up and a tornado's pulling things up. And so that supercell's moving pretty much along um, 459 there towards Birmingham. And there are reports. You got this from all over the Southeast that day. There were reports of things falling in people's yards and things falling in parking lots that weren't from that area. And what was happening was debris was being lofted. All sorts of things were being lofted so high into the air, 20,000 plus feet into the air, that they were being taken by the updraft and then deposited 50 plus miles away. There was stuff falling in Birmingham from Tuscaloosa before the tornado got to Birmingham. Wild scene. It was live. It was happening live on TV, live or wild scene. So I'm in Columbus. We ended up chasing an EF3 tornado that made its way through Manchester, Georgia. Um, 
So we were, we were on the Georgia side of the river that day, but I, I have several buddies who were first responders, several buddies who were in Arab, Alabama, Coleman, Alabama, Tuscaloosa, Birmingham. Uh, there was a big EF five that crossed the state line or EF four high end EF four up near Ringgold, Georgia had a buddy that was up there. All oh, the stories you get unspeakable, terrible, horrible things that you witness. There is no scene. I've never seen one in a movie or elsewhere that could prepare you for what it's like. If you witness a major tornado, EF four, EF five tornado, the immediate aftermath, as soon as it's moved on, it is the most surreal scene you could ever imagine. It's the most horrible nightmarish thing you could ever imagine. That's why I tell people who always think they want to chase, you always got to be prepared to be in search and rescue mode. You stop chasing as soon as you know people are hurt and you go into search and rescue mode. I was in this no more than a year ago in Beauregard, Alabama. We were close to an EF4 tornado. We were a tenth of a mile away from that bad boy on Highway 59 down there. And so it moves on. We're in there. Uh, the, the two things that stand out the most are how silent things are, followed by screams and how thick the smell of pine is in the air. It's so thick, it almost clogs your, your nasal passages because so many trees are snapped. And so it, it's, it the smells and you also smell gas, natural gas a lot of, in a lot of cases. You have no clue what to do. You can't move around. There's timber all over the place. It was a heavily wooded area. Everything got mowed down where I was. So that was my most recent example. But going back to April 27, 2011, oh man, it was a bad day. It was a really bad day, generational day. And the immediate aftermath was something I'll never forget. Everyone down here remembers that. Everyone. Incredible day. 316 fatalities that day alone. And over, overall, it was a multi-day outbreak, I think uh, north of 330, but there were 3,000 injuries just that day. In 2011, think about how, how advanced technology is and how advanced warning systems are, and to still not be able to do anything. That's how big that outbreak was. Really incredible day. Let's move on. B squared 20 in the podcast review section. As a high school coach, I greatly appreciate your perspective on sports. Your show's a must listen. Let me pause there. I normally don't read the comments. I read every one of them. I don't read them on air, but this one I wanted to read because I appreciate the compliment, but also this represents something we try to do with this podcast and with also the way that we structure Late Kick Live on the YouTube channel. I've always wanted to appeal to coaches, not because I'm able to talk on your level necessarily from a schematic standpoint, game planning standpoint organizing your program standpoint? Absolutely not. You guys run circles around me all day in that area. And I don't try to pretend like I'm something I'm not there. But what I do try and do is put together smart content and put together things to where you, if you're a coach and you listen to us, I guarantee you there have been multiple times, if you've listened for any length of time where you say, you know, that actually sounds like the antithesis of what we would normally hear on TV or radio from a quote unquote media personality. That sounds like the perspective of someone in our world. Now I've never been a football coach, but I've always prided our product in being something that is able to look a lot more through the lens of a football mind and a football minded person 
than a media-minded person, if that makes any sense. That's no disrespect to this industry. I'm in this industry. But I've always believed, it's one of the core principles of any kind of content we put out here. I've always believed if we're putting out a product that garners the respect of people in the football world, coaches most notably, by default, it's going to garner the respect of the casual football fan. And that's the way that we run things here. So just a little side note, we move on. What is the perception of Michigan State? That was the question. They were on the cusp of being elite not too long ago, and now they've been mired in mediocrity. Well, yeah, I agree with your assessment there. They were on the cusp of being elite. I don't know that I believe they were ever on the cusp of being elite. I, I think they squeezed every ounce of potential out of their program. But remember what that did. All that did was it got them a couple of wins over Ohio State. I mean, make no mistake now, they were rolling. But they got put in a playoff situation against Alabama and got shut out. 38 nothing. I remember being there. I sat next to, in the press box, a kid from the Detroit Free Press. I want to say that's where he was from. And there was so much excitement amongst the Michigan State beat guys and girls before the game. And everyone had their scenarios of how Michigan State could pull off the upset. And me sitting there knowing full well what's coming. And it was just kind of as it started to unfold and they started to see we're firing a BB gun at a freight train here. And the sad part is the BB gun is about the best we have compared to what you know Alabama brings to the table. I just, the perception nationally is what you asked for. The perception nationally is what I just said. At that point, that was the apex for Michigan State playing the way they played. That style of play, it took them as far. It took them over the cliff, not to the edge. It took them over the cliff, probably further than a lot of people thought D'Antonio could make it. Well, now Mel Tucker's the head coach there. And I can tell you the perception nationally is a lot of people think Mel Tucker not necessarily feared, not necessarily a guy that anyone outside of East Lansing expects to, you know, take Michigan State to the next level and be a perennial contender. Now, maybe that's what they need. Maybe they need some time out of the spotlight and maybe they need to learn what their identity needs to be. But that's kind of the national perception right now. It's ironically, it's kind of the way that you described it, just sort of mediocrity and let's wait and see. Next up, podcast review. Again, what are your thoughts on ranking systems like the S&P Plus that continue to put some teams above other teams, even after those teams have beaten that team? Specifically, I'm referring to how Alabama was still ahead of LSU in some power ratings last year, even after LSU beat them. Is there any real justification or is there something else going on? Let me answer this in two parts. All right, last year, uh, I don't remember specifically what any one rating system had. I do remember in a general sense, yes, uh, it is very common to see in the S&P Plus or maybe in a Vegas odds makers power rating, you can see Team A lose to Team B, but Team A still be ranked above Team B. I believe in that. Now, here's where I differ from some people. Some people believe that you should just take power ratings alone and that's how you should decide the playoff. That's far too radical. Like that's far too progressive if you want to call it that for me. I, but I also don't believe in the idea that just because you've beaten someone means you're a better team than them. What's the marriage here? What's the mesh point? The mesh point as it relates to how you decide championships, how you decide a postseason in college football 
has to be a marriage, a blend, a healthy blend of merit versus power. And here's what I mean. What I mean is, you know, if, if we've got a situation where Washington State beats Oregon in, in week two, and, um, you know, Oregon's sitting there minus five turnovers that day, and they lose 30 to 27. And then they steamroll the rest of their schedule, and Washington State drops a couple of games. Like at the end of the year, I mean, we're, who, who really is looking and saying, Washington State, they're better than Oregon. How do I know they beat them? It's not that. Because it, it makes no sense logically when you look at it and say, oh, Wazoo ahead of Oregon just because the best team doesn't always win the game. The most deserving team wins the game. So if we're talking about deserving versus best, those are two different conversations. I know I'm going in 15 different directions here. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Where the rubber meets the road is when we get to the end of the year. And maybe you got teams that haven't played each other. And maybe you've got, I don't know, let's take a scenario that hasn't happened so you don't think I'm kind of subtweeting a particular year. Let's say this year. Alabama beats LSU in Baton Rouge. That's LSU's only loss. I, just follow me here. I know you guys think LSU is going like eight and four, but follow me. And so LSU is like 11 and one. Alabama goes to Atlanta. They win. They're a 13 and 0 SEC champ. And then we're taking LSU and then we're comparing them against other teams that maybe are one loss or conference champ one loss in a lesser division, that's where the power ratings are important. That's where merit and power are blended. Because right now, you got some folks who want to go all one way or all the other way. You got to understand the, the healthy balance that you can strike between these two kinds of ways, measurements, if you will, to decide a hierarchy in college football. I probably didn't even answer that well, so probably need to ask me again. Uh, let's move on. Uh, podcast review here. I've always been intrigued by how Dabo Swinney instills Christianity as a part of the culture at Clemson. How do you think religion affects recruiting for a program like Clemson or Notre Dame? I think it affects it. Uh, I think that sometimes uh, the, the way that Clemson has structured their program, I think sometimes it's misunderstood. I know kids who play at Clemson. I know kids who grew up around the areas that I'm from that go to Clemson. Uh, what happens is, yes, there's a foundation, there's a culture that, that is a faith-based culture there. That's not the only place they do that, by the way. I think they've maybe made it a little more public. They've made it a little more part of their public brand. It's like I grew up near Auburn. Auburn, you know, made family their brand, the Auburn family. And Auburn's not the only place that they preach family. Auburn just decided we're going to really market family as part of our atmosphere. And they've done it successfully. Well, at Clemson, they've used faith-based principles as part of their culture. And they use it, and they use it very effectively. And, but but here's, the, here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is some of the false perception is, well, hey, if you're, if you're not for that Christianity stuff, then, ooh, man, you don't have any business going to Clemson. Well, that's false. That's, I, know, I know kids there now. Uh, it is part of the culture there, but there's nothing forced on you at all whatsoever. It, it's a very tolerant environment. I know there's a lot of mess out there right now about Clemson. I'm not going down that road whatsoever. Totally detached from what I'm talking about here. But I think that when you go on the recruiting trail, 
uh, more times than not, when you go into the living room of a prospective athlete, there is a spiritual element to the, that family, percentage-wise, more often than not, not all the time. And so that helps you. When people identify that with your program before they've ever spoken to you, make no mistake, it helps you. So yes, it does have an effect in recruiting. You mentioned Notre Dame there, and it's maybe a little different because of the sort of aura of Catholicism around Notre Dame's program as opposed to Clemson. I get the sense that probably it's a bigger deal or Clemson may be more aggressive with it. Like Clemson may wear the sticker on their shirt a little bit more, so to speak, than Notre Dame does. Um, but yeah, it, it is an impact. It does have an impact. Scott in the podcast review section, if stadiums are limited to 50% capacity this fall, who gets dibs on tickets? Boy, isn't that the question of the hour? Students or season ticket holders and boosters? Who's getting in? I'm about to start my fifth year in college. I'd hate to spend it watching on TV while boosters get to be at the game. Well, Scott, here is the conundrum. One of those classic conundrums we love to talk about. You know money talks in life and in college football, money talks. So stands to reason, logic at least would tell you, if I'm a high six-figure, low seven-figure-per-year donor, I'm getting in that game, right? Well, probably, but let's also pause to think about how old the average seven-figure-per-year donor is and who's the most vulnerable right now as it relates to the entire reason behind why the stadium would only be 50% capacity. So then, and I'm, of course, talking about older folks being more at risk for COVID-19. Whereas younger people like yourself are far less at risk. I've never believed that we need to treat this with one blanket policy. It's completely asinine. Just like it's asinine to me that we should, you know, federally regulate Omaha, Nebraska, the same way we do Manhattan, two different parts of the country, two different worlds that deal with two different realities. So you as a fifth year college student, you live a different reality than if I'm a 67-year-old owner of 50 tire dealerships across the Southeast and I want to get into a game. Well, what if health experts are saying I don't need to be around a bunch of people, but they're saying you are a lot better off being around a group of people than I would be. I don't know. What I'm saying is what if there are measures put in place that take the decision out of my hands or take the decision out of the hands that would normally grant access to the people who write the biggest check per year. I think students are going to be in stands. I think a lot of people are going to be in stands, period. I get the sense that we are moving towards maybe above 50% capacity. Now, the question is, do we have any setbacks between now and July and then August when these decisions have to be made? Hey, how about this? Are the regulations that we start the season under the same ones that we're living under two months into the season. I don't know. A lot of trial and error. There's no book on this right now. Gunner, 955 in the podcast review. Will 24-7 ever make a feature where fans can make crystal ball selections for fun? Personally, I would love it. Gunner, I don't think so. Here's why. All it would be is sort of this incestuous environment, for lack of a much better term, of course, where Fans of a program just predict every player they want to commit to their program. Like Wayne from Wetumpka is going to have 60 different kids predicted to commit to Alabama. And uh, Abner from Athens is going to have like 75 different kids committing to Georgia. And the point is, I don't know how useful the tool would be. Here's what I would suggest. Because I do this. I work here. And I do this. 
use the class calculator and screenshot the class calculator. Because the class calculator, if you guys aren't familiar with this tool, it's my favorite tool that we have on 247sports.com. You can take anyone's class, pull up anyone's class, and you can hypothetically add kids that aren't committed or maybe even committed elsewhere. You can put them in Ohio State's class. If you think Alabama's about to land J.C. Latham and they're going to add Tommy Brockermeyer, the Brockermeyer twins, well, you can go ahead and throw them in Alabama's class and calculate what their overall point total would be at that point. Everyone does simulated classes anyway. Why don't hmm, bad hiccup there? Why don't you take advantage of that tool? I mean, that's my advice because to me, the class calculator is even more fun than what a fan crystal ball would be. Wade in the podcast review: How can Virginia Tech get back to perennial prominence? Is it a facilities thing? Is it a lack of donor giving? What do they need to do to get back to where they were years ago? Well, Wade, let's lay out the formula. The formula years ago was special teams and defense. So let me ask you, if Virginia Tech returned to what they were when they were on top of the world and running things by winning special teams and winning defense. In other words, if you could take post-Michael Vick. Now, Michael Vick kind of changed everything there. But when they were good, even after Michael Vick, if I just took that product and put it on the field right now, what's it doing in the ACC? I don't think it's holding a candle to what Clemson's doing. So the answer to getting back to the level that they were in regard to competing against the ACC is probably doing something either different to or on top of what they used to be. I'm, of course, talking about offense. Now, Justin Fuentes there, and I think that Virginia Tech still feels to me and a lot of people like an anonymous program. We had a question about Michigan State earlier for different reasons, of course, due to the tenure of the respective coaching staffs, both of those programs to me feel anonymous. When you mentioned Virginia Tech football, you guys know what you think about your program, but nationally, what does someone in Houston, Texas think about Virginia Tech football? They used to know, at least they did used to have a very, very apparent identity. I don't know what the identity there is now. You can tell me what they're trying to do. I don't know what it is. So first things first, before you worry about facilities or donor giving, What's the culture? What's the identity? In other words, what are you giving those people to believe in in order to write those checks? People got to believe in something before they want to endorse it and they want to bankroll it. So that's the first thing I would worry about. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Robert, podcast review. Oh, a loaded question here. What happened to the 2018 Alabama team? They crushed almost everyone en route to the title game, and then they got humiliated by Clemson. Were they just that badly outmatched, or was there something else in play? No, they weren't that badly outmatched by Clemson. I always equate a football game to a grab claw machine. Now, you guys have heard me say this before, but let's use, instead of the grab claw machine, let's use just a a simulator. Let's use ping pong balls, okay? Let's put 100 ping pong balls in a machine, and let's put a final score inside every ping pong ball. Now, this is not the way real football works. But if you could live in 100 universes and you could have the same Clemson team and the same Alabama team take the field in 100 different universes and play 100 versions of that game, let's take the final scores of those 100 games, put them all on pieces of paper, wad them up, put them in those ping pong balls, and then let's put them in the machine just like the NBA draft lottery and let's draw those balls out. Very, very, very few of those balls are going to have a Clemson four-touchdown win. In in fact, I would venture to guess there may only be one or two in there. There would also be some, believe it or not, there'd be some balls in there that had Alabama winning that game by three-plus touchdowns. Those are the extreme outliers. Most of those games are going to be one-possession games, a vast majority of them. It just so happens that a chain of events unfolded. You know, the 3% chance unfolded that night instead of the 70 plus percent chance. That's the very, very basic way of of explaining what happened. Now, there are all kinds of reasons. Like I was close to the Alabama program that year. I think I was at seven of their games that year. There was a ton going on behind the scenes there. Had they beaten Clemson that night, you would have still gotten stories afterwards about how big a mess they were internally. That's what's always fascinated me about Nick Saban. They've been on this incredible run And if you're not privy to the inner workings of that program, if you're watching the documentary 20 years from now, you may look back, if they don't choose to tell you behind the scenes stuff, you may look back and say, man, they were on top of the world. They didn't have all this mess going on that some of these seven and five programs did. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they have. Yeah, they will. (laughs) I'm telling you guys, I can't, a lot of this stuff you're told about with the condition that you don't repeat it, but just some some serious drama. Nick Saban deserves a Nobel Peace Prize on top of any Coach of the Year awards for how he's held it together in some years with so many things. When you get the kind of coaches, the kinds of egos, the kinds of names, the kind of talent that they've had come through there and you put them all together, whoo, man, the consequences of success. I've talked about it a lot. And uh, they were They were on display, behind the scenes at least, so I guess they weren't on display, but they were there that year. Now, what does that sound like to a Clemson fan? Excuse making. I'm not making excuses. I'm telling you what reality was, and I'm telling you Clemson wholeheartedly deserved to win the game that night, but you're asking me what happened. What happened is a a matchup that probably would yield a result of one possession either way, 70 plus percent of the time, just so happened to go sideways. 
good for Clemson. Good for Clemson. Now, here's the follow-up question. This is Trevor Lawrence's last year of playing college ball, in all likelihood this year. If they don't win the national title this year, think about how you'll view his, his career kind of in comparison to Tua. Tua comes off the bench as a true freshman, wins a national title. And everyone assumes, oh, my goodness, if he just did this, coming in cold as a true freshman, I mean, Bama's, how are they going to, what are they going to do? They're going to three-peat under him before he goes to the NFL? Well, no, the answer is they never won another one with him at quarterback. That was it. That was as close as they got the first time. So Trevor Lawrence won a national championship the first time. They made it back the next year. They got beat by LSU. What are they going to do this year? If they don't win one this year, how crazy will that be? Everyone thought, oh, my goodness, after Trevor Lawrence just smokes Alabama, he's back two more years. Who's ever going to stop Clemson? The sport. Life. Just the natural order of things being chaotic. That's what can stop you. This is not Xbox. This is real life. So um, that's no prediction on Clemson one way or the other. Just sort of something to think about. Matty Ice Weatherman. I don't know you, Matty, but I think I like you already. A podcast review here. He says, why does it feel like South Carolina cannot have sustained success on the field or in recruiting? How do you fix South Carolina? Uh, kind of the same way that I described Virginia Tech, I can describe South Carolina. Now, I'm closer to Carolina because I've covered the SEC for a while, but if I live in uh, Billings, Montana, I'm just flexing geographically now, but if I live in like Tacoma, Washington, and someone says, what is South Carolina football? What's the answer? What's the answer? If they ask you, what is Georgia football? You know exactly what it is. You, you know exactly. If you watch college football, you know what the identity of Georgia's program is. It may be changing right now, but you know what it's been. What's Carolina's identity? And then secondly, no matter what your identity is, no matter what you try to be philosophically on offense or defense, it, if you can't keep kids on the field, if you can't keep them healthy, that matter. Like that's been their biggest problem. They've been kind of a, a, a lesser chronicled version of what Alabama's been last couple of years. Now, Bama's still been good, but they've had a bunch of injuries. Carolina's had a ton of injuries too. So the first step to fixing them, uh, fix strength and conditioning or whatever in the world you have to do to keep players on the field. I know they've made moves in that department in the offseason. Now we got to see if it yields results. Let's see. Uh, next up, Jeremiah in the podcast review. Do you think Jared Garantano will be a star quarterback for Tennessee this year or is Harrison Bailey the future? No, I don't think Jared Garantano uh, is capable of being a star quarterback. Now, do I think he'll be the starting quarterback? Yeah, to start the year, I do. Certainly, though, I think Harrison Bailey is the future. So I, that doesn't necessarily mean in week one or week five. But yeah, I, I think he is the not just the long-term future. I think he's on the field at some point this year. Rob, in the podcast review, we hear kids making official visits to campus, but how does that work? What all do they do? Well, Rob, they uh, either fly in or drive in usually. Friday night, because keep in mind, they've probably played a high school game. So they're coming in Friday night or more commonly early Saturday. And they, of course, they're there pregame. So they're in a whatever area of the stadium you have them pregame. And then they are on the field pregame. They're walking around on the sideline. Then they go into a special area, usually in the lower level end zone right there on the field. That's where most programs have it set up. After the game, 
There is a recruiting area, usually in the stadium. Coaches do their post-game press conference, and then they're right over there recruiting. And you probably send them out with a player host that night. Now, this is if it's during the season, like during a game week. You're probably going out that night with player hosts. The next morning, Sunday morning, you're usually at the head coach's house having breakfast. You are probably mixing in at some point a tour of the academic facilities for the department that you're going to pursue a major in. If you go on a non-football weekend, still most of this happens. You just have more time to do the touring. Um, a lot of times you have these superstar deans of programs and different uh, degree tracks that'll have these very elaborate presentations laid out. Strength science, sports science, strength and conditioning, they'll have a presentation laid out. And so your entire academic and football plan, the, the programs that do it right, is explained to you. It's laid out to you. And I'll tell you what's going to happen in the future. Five years from now, a lot of this will have shifted towards what their business plan is for you and what different opportunities and endorsement potential that you have there. And they'll have full market research done on what your earnings potential will be by going to the University of Florida, let's say, versus if you were to commit to Florida State and we can show you on a chart here, uh, their wide receivers on average have earned X number of dollars through endorsements, whereas we have these connections with this car dealership, this supplement company, on top of these boosters. You guys know that's coming. And I got a lot of thoughts on that, by the way. I've been doing some thinking on that. And I don't know necessarily that this name, image, and likeness thing is going to be nearly the death knell of college athletics for all but a few, like people are suggesting it will be. Not ready to talk about it yet, still formulating that thought. It's in a dangerous place right now, which is just in my head. Uh, Nittany Lions 65, podcast review section. You recently talked about tier one programs. I'm wondering how Penn State can go about grabbing those monkey bars. I'll explain what that means in a second. Winning the Big Ten a few years ago didn't do the trick. Losing by three and a half points on average per game, that's not enough. What gets us there? Well, the monkey bars are this. Well, the way I describe the tier one programs, Bama, Ohio State, Clemson is there. Um, Oklahoma is, is either very close to there or there. I put Georgia there, but since they haven't won a championship, a lot of you don't want to. That's fine. Here's what I mean. What I mean is these programs all have something in common. This is where Georgia does not fit that description yet. All these other programs, LSU, I think, is there. These programs have found superstar, transcendent talents at the quarterback position, which has led to a flood of perimeter skill position talent coming in. And there is now unlimited re recruiting resources, and they don't hurt to get talent. And it's like the quality of play has elevated to a degree that all the good coaches want to come there. Um, they get blank checks written to invest into building and beefing up their recruiting departments, their football operations, uh, their support staff, nutrition, sports science, everything takes off. And it's like, if you look at a graph, they're moving at a different trajectory forward and onward and upward than the tier two teams. And what concerns you if you're Penn State or what concerns you if you're Tennessee is if you're not already in tier one, you worry that those programs, those few are detaching themselves so much that you won't be able to reach them. And so what I made it analogous to on our previous show is if you're watching American Ninja Warrior, I, I don't know why I brought it up because I don't watch the show, 
but I used to work at an NBC affiliate and I used to see it on. So I remember I'd always see these folks jumping for these monkey bars. And if they didn't grab it, they'd fall in the pool face first and medic. But if they do grab them, they swing there for a second, but all these folks are physically fit. So, you know, if they got a hold of the monkey bars, they're eventually going to be able to pull themselves up. And from there, they're up there. They're not falling. And that's kind of how I feel about these teams that aren't currently tier one, what they have to do to become tier one. Now for Penn State, that's all metaphorical. Like how do you actually make that happen? Getting a superstar quarterback or getting a legit future first round NFL talent at quarterback, that's how you do it. Because then you're able to open up these pipelines to South Florida wide receiver talent and East Texas wide receiver talent and all this different talent, all these other programs are getting because the best wide receiver and running back and offensive line talent, they want to go play with those superstar quarterbacks. That's why after Deshaun Watson came to Clemson, they didn't have a problem anymore. You notice when we talked earlier about that 2017 Alabama class, that wide receiver class, kid named Jerry Judy and a kid named Devontae Smith and um, Henry Ruggs. A class later, they had Jalen Waddle. What did that follow? Well, it was in the same class as Tua Tonga Vailoa. They knew there's a stud going to Alabama. I want to go play with him. Well, where is Penn State's? Because Hackenberg wasn't that. So where is that? That's what you look for. That's what it takes. Next up, uh, more go. G-E-A-U-X, by the way, podcast review. This is a non-football question. I noticed you have washed in his blood in your Twitter bio. I'm curious, what is your favorite Bible verse? Well, this one's easy to remember for me. It's etched in my brain. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now, it's a very good message, obviously, but the, the reason why it became my favorite is because back when I was in a Sunday school class, we were put through sort of a boot camp of sorts, a little, I guess you would call it a church boot camp uh, for memorization. And we had to memorize verses. And this one was like the verse of the week. And the way that they tested you is you got marched in front of the congregation on a Sunday night and the spotlight was on you and microphones in your face. And if you don't know your verse, then you're going to look like an idiot. And some people crashed and burned. Well, first Corinthians 10, 13 was mine. And boy, did I memorize it. Now, the reason I like it on top of just that memory is because it lets you know, A, the excuse of I couldn't help it is never valid, in his eyes at least, never valid, uh, because B, you're assured that you're not going to have anything put in front of you that you can't handle. So what's the determining factor? You, not the temptation, you. Good question, though. Let's move it right along. Atticus EP podcast review section. It may be an unpopular opinion, but one of the most underrated rivalries to me was always Colorado, Nebraska, the day after Thanksgiving. I went to it when I was growing up in Boulder. The states hate each other. If realignment happens like you think it will, do you believe Colorado and Nebraska could end up back in the Big 12? Um, the way that I loosely envision it, yes, I would say so. To, to be clear, the way that I envision this is not something that I've had slip to me on a piece of paper. It's not something that I've had a conference commissioner tell me off the record. This is strictly speculation on my part, and it's a longer, kind of a broader, way down the road mentality that I've always had that we're eventually headed to four super conferences, if you want to call them that, a, a kind of Leviathan SEC 
Same thing for the ACC, same thing for the Big Ten, probably all of them with 16 teams apiece, and then sort of a merging of the Pac-12 and the Big 12. I don't know what you call that, but I would imagine if it happened, maybe, maybe, maybe possibly Nebraska and Colorado end up there. The problem is Nebraska is currently in the Big Ten. So now that I think about it more, whereas geographically it may make sense, I don't know that that ends up happening because Nebraska is not leaving the Big Ten voluntarily. If they're out of there, it's because someone kicked them out of there. Uh, B. Bacon in the YouTube comments section. Josh, what are your thoughts on Arizona State in 2020? I think they have a really good shot to be undefeated when they go to Autzen to play Oregon November 13th. I want to know what you think about the program and the direction. I, sir, let me be delicate here. I do not believe they have a great shot to be undefeated when they go in there November 13th. Now, here's the upside, okay? Jaden Daniels, you will find people to tell you he's the best quarterback in the Pac-12 this year. The problem is, potentially the problem, is I'm reading over some of his numbers. Pro Football Focus, uh, this was very, very heavily talked about in Sun Devil circles, uh, pointed out last year he was the least accurate quarterback. His accuracy rating was 48.4%. Now, is that concern or is that optimism? Because he was a true freshman last year. So you could say, okay, well, he shined and put up the numbers he did despite that inaccuracy as a true freshman. That means that was his floor. Think about how high his ceiling is. You could say that, or you could say, well, that's just always going to be a concern. So, you know, maybe what we saw from him his first year was just a lot of fireworks, but now as the league adjusts, it gets tougher for him, a lot of attention on him. If the inaccuracy was there as a freshman, as he took people by surprise, what happens when everyone's paying more attention? I don't know which way I'm going there. The biggest question for them I don't know if you guys realize this. You know Herm Edwards is the head coach. How many of you know Marvin Lewis is the defensive coordinator out there this year? A lot of experience, if nothing else. That's a big question. But think about who they will play before they go to Oregon. They got Brigham Young. You asked Tennessee about that. They go to Southern Cal. They've got back-to-back road games at Colorado at Washington State. These back-to-back roadies in the West are nothing to laugh at. I don't care what the records are of your opponents. Just going, just flying to Colorado and flying to Pullman, Washington. It's not a small task. And there's a four-week stretch where they're at Colorado, at Wazoo. They've got Cal at home. And then that game at Oregon is on short rest. At Oregon, third road game in four weeks. And it's on a Friday. So it's treacherous. I'll say that. It's very treacherous. College Football Central in the YouTube comment section. What do you see on the horizon for the two Mississippi schools? I think the air raid at state will be good enough for an upset win each year, but I think Kiffin might be a home run higher. He seems to have matured a lot, and I think Ole Miss could eventually become a contender. Yeah, I'm still very much in the wait and see mode with how things are going to work out for Mike Leach here. And, you know, I was listening to uh, Bud Elliott and Barton on the Barton and Bud show. I highly suggest you guys subscribe to that one. That's another podcast we put out here. And, um, You know, they were kind of talking about how the air raid, what is its impact in the SEC in 2020? If you bring it down here in 2008, if you bring it in 2012, boy, that's a different story because you're taking everyone by surprise because everyone is built to defend what Alabama and LSU are doing, power football, two back, line up in the eye, run it down your throat. And then all of a sudden you bring the air raid in here and I'm having to defend four or five receivers every single play. Well, now everyone throws it. 
Like, look what LSU did last year. Look what Alabama's been doing. Everybody's moved towards a more wide-open, spread-based approach. Everyone's throwing the ball more. Mississippi State, they may succeed under Mike Leach. I don't think it's going to be because they take anyone by surprise. So if they're not taking anyone by surprise, are they out-scheming anyone? It's not that hard. Talk to defensive guys. Go find a defensive high school coach. You don't need to go find a defensive coordinator in the SEC. Go find a high school defensive coach. Ask him to watch what Mike Leach does offensively and ask him how hard is his offense to understand and diagnose. They'll break it down for you in a napkin setting. They don't need that much time to break it down for you. Now, I'm not telling you a high school coach is equipped to run in there and defend it, but Alabama and LSU and Auburn and Texas A&M, I'm mentioning teams you have to play every year, they are equipped. They're fully equipped to defend it. And so I question how Mike Leach's style transitions into the SEC in 2020. Best defensive back talent in the country. That's who they're coming down. That's who he's coming down here to play. So it's not that I don't think he can do it. I have healthy skepticism about it. Now, I do agree with what you said. Are they the caliber of team that can pull an upset a year? Sure, absolutely. I'm not telling you they're going to be easy to play. I'm just telling you they're not going to take the cattle prod to the neck of the conference like maybe he would have a decade ago. Now, as for Ole Miss, I have a lot more confidence in what Lane Kiffin will do. I I find that style to be maybe a little bit more sustainable. I think there is a lot more complexity There's a lot more diversity. There are many more layers to what Lane Kiffin's offensive style will bring at Ole Miss as opposed to what Mike Leach will do. I think he's a much better recruiter. I know Mississippi State kept some guys on from a player personnel standpoint behind the scenes that people have confidence in when it comes to keeping some in-state talent in Starkville. I think the ceiling's a little bit higher, significantly higher, as a matter of fact, for Kiffin at Ole Miss as opposed to Leach at Mississippi State. Uh, CFB Media on YouTube. When you're in a situation where you get to interview coaches, what goes through your head when you're formulating and selecting the best questions to ask? What makes a good question? And how different is the process for off-season interviews versus halftime and post-game? Let's break these down one at a time. This is a good question. I, uh, I've told you guys, this format is for any kind of question you want to ask. I mean, if it's inappropriate, obviously I'll backspace it out of here. But by and large... Um, you know, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of elements of our industry that you're curious about. I know you are because when I was growing up, I was curious about it. It's the behind the scenes stuff that you just a lot of people in the college football media industry don't think that you they don't know that you care about it. I do, and so a lot of this kind of stuff I'm happy to answer. You ask me about behind the scenes stuff all the time. I'm happy to answer it. So the first part, what goes through my head, I want to respect everyone's time. If I'm sitting in a post-game press conference, here's the first thing I know. When, I'm, when I've been covering the SEC, I have not been on a team's beat. Being on a beat means you're covering that team day to day. I'm regional and national and have been since pretty much throughout the duration of doing this, at the very least regional. So I'm, I'm at the biggest game every week. I may be in Jordan-Hare Stadium one week. I may be in Knoxville the next week. Well, what I know is there are people in that room and post-game press conference that cover that team every day. I don't step on them. Number one, they're going to ask 
more, more informed questions probably than I am. But number two, I respect their time. I want them to be able to get their stuff in. Uh, I value them and their time more than my time in that setting. But the second is what makes a good question. Uh, to me, a good question is one that gets tangible information out of a coach. That's why I'm not really big on the talk about so-and-so's performance today. That's like, I mean, he, it's just, you know, what's going to come out of their mouth 99 times out of a hundred. Now here's the difference. I'm not writing a post game. I'm not writing a gamer as they call it post game wrap up column. I don't need to get quotes from a coach. You know, I don't already have the skeletal outline of my post game wrap written and I just need to fill it in with quotes. So I'm in a different world admittedly than maybe a beat writer is. If I'm going to ask a question, all I'm thinking is, you got a bunch of folks in standstill traffic on the interstate, probably two or three miles away from the stadium right now. And they're listening to this post-game interview on the radio. What are they thinking? What did they walk out of this stadium thinking? What are they sitting at home listening, thinking? Cause that's all that we really are there for is to be the conduit between the head coach, the players, the program, and you. I'm not there for me. I certainly am blessed to be there, but there's no purpose for me to be there if you don't exist. And so Forget about what I want to know. What do you want to know? What if I did a show that was nothing but what I'm interested in and didn't concern you at all? I wouldn't have a show very long. Well, by the same token, if I'm in a press conference and I know 35% of you are wondering the same thing, why would I ask something different that no one cares about? So that's kind of the way I'm thinking. Now, as for how different an interview in a halftime or post-game setting is, as opposed to maybe an off-season, world's different. That's like McDonald's versus like St. Elmo's Steakhouse in Indianapolis. Totally different. Obviously, you much prefer the off-season long-form kind of layout where you have some time and you can get some stories out of people. I think that's a good place to wrap things up this week, don't you? Again, I thank you guys so much for these five-star reviews. If you haven't already given us one, it's very easy. It's free. Click that five stars and then give us a written review. The best way to get your question answered on this podcast is to submit a question in the written review portion. You can also hit me up, joshpate706 at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter, at LateKickJosh. We're active on there. I talk to you guys on there all week. And last but certainly not least, our flagship show, for the Late Kick brand at least, is Late Kick Live. It is on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. It is, again, free. I ask that you subscribe there. We do it live on Thursday nights and Sunday nights at 8 Eastern, 7 Central. And I hope to see you there. Until next week, this has been really fun. I've got to go find a new voice to use tomorrow. Until then, appreciate you guys listening. Have a great rest of your week. God bless.